This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Last Man Takes LSD, Foucault and the End of the Revolution, by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora. Part intellectual history, part critical theory, The Last Man Takes LSD challenges the way we think about both Michel Foucault and modern progressive politics. One fateful day in May 1975, Foucault dropped acid in the Southern California desert. In letters reproduced here, he described it as among the most important events of his life, one which would lead him to completely rework his history of sexuality. That trip helped redirect Foucault's thought and contributed to a tectonic shift in the intellectual life of the era. He came to reinterpret the social movements of May 68 and reposition himself politically in France, embracing anti-totalitarian currents and becoming a critic of the welfare state. The Last Man Takes LSD, Foucault and the End of the Revolution, by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. China's economic boom is a powerful indictment of neoliberal orthodoxy because its rejection of neoliberal orthodoxy is what made China's heterodox form of state-directed capitalism possible. My guest today is economist Isabella Weber, the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, a book that answers just that question. As China transitioned to capitalism in the 1980s, the neoliberal prescription was for shock therapy, rapid price liberalization, austerity, free trade, and privatization. The neoliberal consensus, of course, did not produce great results around the world. During neoliberalism's heyday, Latin America and Africa were devastated. Infamously, Russia's implementation of shock therapy helped to dismantle that global giant's economy, leaving it the mess it remains today. Meanwhile, China narrowly escaped shock therapy and became the new workshop of the world. This book and interview are not endorsements of the Chinese model. But understanding the Chinese boom and its history and China's place within the world system is all critically important if we are to make sense of how global capitalism in China and everywhere functions today and where it may be heading. This is particularly true as the neoliberal model enters into crisis in the United States and as countries everywhere must harness the power of the state over markets to confront climate change. Before we get started, The Dig is a listener-supported operation, and the place where you, our listeners, can support us is at patreon.com slash the dig. We operate from a different sort of podcast social contract. We pay well no bonus episodes to squeeze you into contributing because we want everyone to listen regardless of your ability to pay. And so we instead ask those of you who can afford to contribute to voluntarily do so at patreon.com slash the dig. We also have books, mugs, tote bags. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. And a reminder that the dig is taking a half-assed summer sabbatical, meaning that we're releasing episodes only every two weeks for July and August. 
After last year, we are tired and need to chill. If you need more Dig than we're providing, please peruse our vast archives at thedigradio.com. We have loads of great episodes, and it is very unlikely that you have listened to all of them. Okay, here's Isabella Weber, a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Isabella Weber, welcome to The Dig. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. You write, quote, China's escape from shock therapy meant that the state maintained the capacity to insulate the economy's commanding heights, the sectors most essential to economic stability and growth, as it integrated into global capitalism. Instead of destroying the existing price and planning system in the hope that a market economy would somehow emerge from the ruins, China pursued an experimentalist approach that used the given institutional realities to construct a new economic system. The state gradually recreated markets on the margins of the old system. How did China escape shock therapy? What sort of reforms did they pursue instead? And why is that all key to understanding China's world historic economic boom? First of all, I think we have to clarify what shock therapy is in order to understand how one could escape from it. Um, the basic logic of shock therapy is that that you have to destroy the old system in order to make space for the market to emerge. So, so the idea is that the plan has to disappear so that market relations can emerge spontaneously. In more technical terms, shock therapy was a specific package of policies that assumed that you should liberalize oil prices so that prices could move freely, since at the end of the day, from a neoclassical perspective, the free movement of prices is really the market coordinating mechanism. Secondly, you should impose macroeconomic austerity that is tight monetary and fiscal policy in order to make sure, so the theory goes, that prices don't spiral out of control after you have liberalized them. So the idea is that through macroeconomic controls, you could prevent the economy from entering into a period of sustained hyperinflation. And then later on, or as much as possible synchronously, um, that should be complemented with privatization and trade liberalization. But even the most hardcore shock therapists acknowledge that privatization would be a slow and complicated process of institution building. So the shocking element of shock therapy is really the price liberalization, the so-called big bang in price reform that should then, as I say, make space for market um, relations to emerge. Now, China did not pursue such a big bang. Instead, China moved in a way where the core of the old system was in the first place maintained. That is to say, initially, the relationships of command and order that characterized the old planned economy continued. However, every individual unit in the old system was allowed to produce for the market beyond fulfilling their, their their orders. So the idea is a little bit like 
if you go to school and you you have done all your homework after you are done with school and done with your homework you can do whatever you want <laughs> so in that sense it's like the margins that that is beyond the the things that you have to deliver this took a particular logic starting from agriculture and moving into the urban industrial economy um which which I'm happy to explain in more detail then lastly why why is that all key to understanding China's world historic economic boom. So if we look at the structure of the world economy, and this is actually some research that I've done in a completely unrelated um, field, in terms of what countries are producing, then we basically find that the richest countries are highly diversified. That is to say, they produce all sorts of things from corn to computer chips, whereas poor countries are only producing a small number of fairly simple commodities, such as, let's say, coffee beans. As a result, the poor countries are really a supplier economy to the core countries in the global economy. Now, China being a very poor country in the 1980s, being technologically pretty backward, if China would have shock liberalized and would not have protected the backbone of the industries that had been built up during the Mao period, it would very likely have entered into the world economy just like such an exporter of only simple commodities, which would have meant that it would have become a mere supplier economy. Now, on the surface, it looks as if China has done just that, right? I mean, China has been the workshop of the world. It has been exporting cheap labor and all of that. However, the strategy behind that, um, without having some sort of conspiracy theory of the long arm of the Communist Party that is reaching from Beijing um, across the world, um, <laughs> the, the strategy behind that was always more than just exporting cheap light industry goods. But the idea was always to attract foreign investment in order to enable an upgrading of China's own industries, in order to learn from foreign technology, to learn from foreign management techniques, and thereby gradually build up its own competitive industries. And in that sense, become an economy that spans all relevant sectors in its own right, rather than being just a supplier for one sector or another for the global core countries. There's no clearer way to illustrate what was at stake for China in this 1980s debate than by comparing China's experience with that of Russia, which you do extensively in the book. Because in Russia, shock therapy was imposed, and the result was economic devastation. You write, quote, Russia's and China's positions in the world economy have been reversed since they implemented different modes of marketization. Russia underwent dramatic deindustrialization, while China became the proverbial workshop of world capitalism. Where did each country stand economically before their turn towards capitalism? And then how was it that shock therapy came to destroy Russia's economy? So to the first part of your question, one angle on that is to simply look at um, the share of a country in world GDP. And uh, if we use that simple and, of course, crude, but yet somewhat revealing measure, we see that the picture from the 19th century to the 20th century in the case of Russia is really a picture of rise up until 
um, the 70s or 80s. And then a picture of fall in terms of its share in GDP, where it rises to around 10% and then falls um, back down to around 3%. Um, on the other hand, in the case of China, it's a picture of fall and then rise. We have to remember that in the early 19th century, China still accounted for about one third of world GDP. It then falls to around, and there are different measures and all of that, but it falls to below 5%. That's an absolutely spectacular statistic. It blew my mind when I read that. Yes. So this is really, I mean, this is basically China used to occupy one third of the world economy um, as late as the 1820s, right? So it then falls below 5% in order to pick up again in the late 80s, really, and um, is now in some sense back on track to becoming um, the world's uh, largest economy. But this is, of course, only looking in terms of weight of GDP in the world economy. However, if we think of it more qualitatively, we have, of course, to remember that the Soviet Union at some point was feared for the possibility of overtaking the United States due to its technological might. And in the, in the 1980s was still a highly industrialized um, country, even though probably the fear of the Soviet Union taking over had more or less faded by then. But nevertheless, this was still a major industrial um, economy. On the other hand, China in the 1980s was still an incredibly poor country. In 1980, the GDP per capita of China was less than that of Sudan or Haiti. So we are really talking outright poverty. Of course, um, GDP is not necessarily the best measure to capture the achievements of Maoism in, in the realms of public health, education, and so on, right? So in that sense, it might be slightly... Um, misleading. Nevertheless, it is an important measure and it does indicate um, the relative wealth of Chinese people in, in, in this period. So in that sense, um, from the vantage point of the 1980s, it is really absolutely spectacular to think that China would today be the focal point of a new Cold War and Russia would have basically been reduced um, to, to a footnote in, 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 in that discourse. More immediately relevant, if we look at the 1990s, Russia went through a transition recession that was deeper and more prolonged than the Great Recession in the United States that came along with a mortality crisis that was so severe that it, nothing like it had been seen in peacetime in any industrialized country previous to that. So it's It was like the typical lifespan in the Soviet Union in the 80s was something like 65 and it dropped to 57 or something. I mean just a dr dramatic. Yeah, that sounds about right. Fall. Yes. Yeah. I mean it's just mind-boggling. It's 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 really a a a a crisis on a scale that makes the 2008 crisis look cute. <laughs> um so the the contrast couldn't be sharper and um of course I'm not arguing that Soviet history can be uniquely explained with shock therapy. However, I do think that um, the choice of economic policy does play a certain role. It's not a monocausal explanation. Nevertheless, it, it is important. So the fact that China in the 1980s was toiling and in fact um, considering very seriously the idea of implementing a Big Bang, which would have been the first step in the direction of shock therapy, 
I think is quite important in understanding how the, the, the global economy is constituted today and also understanding the history that ha has led us up to, um, to the kind of moment that we are facing um, in 2021. Before we get any further, what's the conventional wisdom about or conventional wisdoms, plural, I'm not sure, about the history of China's turn toward capitalism and then boom, that you wrote this book to respond to? In what ways, to your mind, have those conventional interpretations fallen short? Yeah, um, I think it really um, tackles two conventional um, wisdoms. One is um, that China is pragmatist because this is um, in the nature of Chinese people. And um, Chinese have always been pragmatist and they will continue to be pragmatist and pragmatism is what they are and they will be pragmatist forever, <laughs> that kind of idea. Um, in other words, um, naturalizing the um, reform period as being some sort of a foregone conclusion. Challenging that idea by suggesting that in fact, in the first decade of reforms, it was not at all clear how China would be reforming. I think it was clear fairly early on that China was on course for market reforms. But the question of how to go about this was very, very fiercely contested. And um, this question of how, as I argue, is incredibly consequential, as the contrast with the Soviet Union illustrates. The second point that follows from that first point is that most of our discussions um, around China's 1980s and China's reform period have been focused on the transition from capitalism to communism. So have been focused on the big ideological and structural shift as such. What I'm arguing is that um, the, the how of how this happened matters a great deal. So it's not becoming capitalist is equal to becoming capitalist. And it's just about becoming capitalist. And then that's the end of the conversation. Rather, the ways, the precise ways in which a country becomes capitalist is enormously consequential for the ways in which it integrates into the global economy, for the ways in which it develops materially, materially and therefore ultimately um, also of great um, political relevance. So this is a call for introducing nuance in the debate over the um, transition from ambitions towards communism to, um, towards uh, some specific form of capitalist um, model. Chinese people may not be naturally pragmatic, but you did dedicate a really fascinating first chapter to two texts from ancient Chinese economic thought, the Guanza and the salt and iron debate. What do these texts teach and what sort of connections can you draw from so long ago to the 20th century? And as part of what you're responding to with this discussion of ancient texts, the framing of China's reform debates as primarily informed by, by Western economics? Yeah, I mean, I guess that is probably a third um, conventional wisdom that I'm tackling there. That is um, the idea that marketization is equal to westernization, where as soon as Chinese thinkers and um, policymakers start thinking about the market, they should be thinking in terms of westernization. So what I'm trying to show by going so far back and theoretically 
engaging with China's own statecraft tradition is that marketization is not equal to westernization. And at the same time, marketization within China's own tradition has been um, highly contested. And China has itself a history of controversies and debates that um, pertain to the question of how the state should be relating um, to the market. And that these debates go very, very far back. The point is not to suggest that we can take ancient China and then draw a straight line to the 1980s and then we get the answer to what China would be doing in the 1980s. Quite to the contrary, the point is that in the debates in the 1980s, in the controversies, in the fierce struggles of the 1980s, there is a certain depository of knowledge, a certain local context that matters, but that is in itself not monolithic and that presents um, in itself um, um, competing competing views and traditions of, of, of thinking about the state-market relationship. This is some pretty sophisticated political economy for stuff that was written 2,000 plus years ago, identifying the role that a natural monopoly plays in an economy, thinking about how strategic state intervention in a market can affect supply, demand, and price. What sort of, what, what, what's the key sort of principles and findings underlying ancient Chinese political economy? So on the Guanzi side of, of, of the debate, um, I think one key insight is that the state should be using the market as a tool and that the market is an incredibly powerful tool, but that has to be created and played by the state in its own interest in order to stabilize the economy and in order to pursue power and wealth um, for the state. To make this more concrete, I think the, 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 the ideas of the, of the ever normal granary, or not only the ideas, but the actual practice of it, which is already articulated in this ancient text, is, is quite useful. Um, so the idea is basically that markets are powerful mechanisms However, markets are prone inherently to instability and fluctuations. In the grain market, this means that in fall, if we assume a temperate climate, um, you would have harvest time, which means that the market would be flooded with grain supply, which would mean that the price for grain would be going down since you have this sudden um, large supply of grain. Now, as the year evolves um, up to the point just before harvest, the grain supply will be falling. And as a result of that, the price of grain would be rising. So in other words, the basic material structures of agriculture suggest that markets in agriculture are not stable and in a continuous equilibrium, but are inherently fluctuating. Now, this does not mean that you should be suppressing the market, but it means that the state should be participating in the market in order to make people less vulnerable towards private speculation. If the market was left to its own devices, private merchants would be buying up grain for cheap in the fall and selling it at a very high price once grain becomes scarce. Now, the state does something similar, yet different, in the sense that the state buys the grain 
at um, a slightly higher price in the fall than the private merchants would be doing, thereby um, enabling the producers of grain to reap a higher income. At the same time, just before harvest, when the price would be um, becoming very high, the grain, uh, sorry, the state sells the grain at a somewhat lower price. So the, as a result, the state also generates a revenue, which makes it less dependent on direct taxation. However, since the state tries to act in the interest of stabilizing the market as a whole and not in the interest of maximizing the profit for one private merchant, it stabilizes the market by adding to demand when supply is very high and adding to supply when demand is very high in relation to supply. So in that sense, it is really a logic of state market participation, where I think the boundary between state and market really breaks down in the sense that the state is inside of the market and the market is inside of the state. The granary system is essential um, for feeding the people, for ensuring um, the, the, the provisioning of grain, um, especially in times of crisis and fam famine. At the same time, the granaries are part of a private market. So you have these, these completely overlapping logics where there's no such thing as a private market. Um, instead, the private market really becomes part of the state and the state part of the market. You write about a far less ancient economic experience as well that informed the 1980s debate, which is that the, the nationalists, you write, lost the Chinese Civil War in part due to their inability to control hyperinflation, whereas, quote, a key element in the communists' success in overcoming hyperinflation in the late 1940s and early 1950s was recreating and integrating markets through state trading agencies. Again, echoing that discussion we just had about ancient Chinese political economy. What role did economic warfare play in the communist victory? And how did that experience inform both Maoist economics and then the reform debate after Mao's death? I think it's part of a very prominent reading of history in China that um, the fall of the nationalists was not least due to their inability to bring very severe and rampant hyperinflation under control. Now, the nationalists tried all sorts of things, including a policy that was a success um, during World War II um, in the United States, which is um, imposing a general price freeze, which didn't work at all. Um, the reason why it did not work, I think, is because the underlying economic relations had crumbled during the Civil War, which meant that basically the, the basic links of commerce had, had fallen apart and people had basically withdrawn their willingness, in particular farmers um, and, and rural producers had withdrawn their willingness to produce for the market since the market links had become so feeble that they decided to rather um, produce for, for their own subsistence. So in that sense, you really get a dismantling or a falling apart of the social division of labor during wartime, in which context, simply by state order, dictating price stability did not work. In contrast, the communists start doing, to some extent, resonates um, with certain traditional statecraft practices. That is the idea that state commercial agencies 
have to function as market integrators um, by reintegrating markets, creating a situation where money can actually buy stuff and it can not only buy random stuff, but it can buy the most important, most essential goods, which in the context of the 1940s um, were things like grain, cotton, salt, and so on. So really basic um, commodities of basic consumption, but also basic production commodities. So by bringing this trade under their control and ensuring that um, the money that the communists were issuing was, was able to buy these important things, money had a real value attached to it in the sense that it was being exchangeable against things that clearly were of value to pretty much anyone in, in that particular economic social context. So this was part of the logic of economic warfare, where really markets were reintegrated in order to stabilize the value of money, thereby stabilize prices, and thereby um, gain economic ground um, for the communists. After the revolution, this problem of um, inflation continued. And in particular, there was a problem with um, speculation as um, private merchants were trying to corner specific markets, hike up the prices and thereby um, make big um, speculative profits. Now, what the state commercial agents did in this context was to basically coordinate and to out-speculate the speculators by bringing substantial shares of a certain market, let's say cotton cloth, under their control. And then when prices were hiked up to a very high point, flooding a local market prominently um, in, in, in Shanghai that happened with that cotton cloth so that suddenly all this cotton cloth was on the market so that prices started to fall. As prices started to fall, private speculators would become panicky, would start selling. As they started selling ever more, everybody else was going to try to get rid of cotton cloth as quickly as possible so that the speculative hike um, turned around and the bubble burst. So it's really making the bu bubble burst by flooding the market with the stuff uh, in which um, there is a bubble. And as these uh, private merchants then basically went bust, um, they were taken over um, by the communist state. Now, all of this is a long-winded way of saying that the first-generation um, revolutionaries who were still um, in power or who were economists that had been involved in these price-stabilizing and economic integration activities in the 40s, um, who then returned in the 1980s, all of them were thinking about the market in terms of these kind of experiences. So they were thinking about the market as a tool that could be used um, to political ends and where there was no such thing as a very clear boundary between the state and, and the market. Let's turn to the U.S.'s experience successfully using price controls to control inflation during World War II that you just referenced, what the nationalists tried and failed to do during the Chinese Civil War. You write, quote, the experience of the First World War was one of inflation under loose price controls, while production stagnated. In the Second World War, price controls became strict. Price rises were low, while the increase in output was almost beyond imagination. Why did U.S. price controls during World War II succeed when the Chinese nationalists during the Civil War failed? And then what happened when price controls were suddenly abolished after President Truman failed to secure their extension in 1946. 
Yeah, um, so as John Kenneth Galbraith, who um, was really the economist in charge of price controls in the United States, um, writes later on reflecting about the experience of the Second World War, it is very easy to fix prices that are already fixed. Um, so since um, the American economy for the prices that would have been most prone towards rapid increase um, was highly concentrated, the prices of, of goods such as steel and so on would anyways not be um, set on a free market with many small competitors. Rather, it would be set um, basically through negotiations between a small set of players. So it was fairly easy. The free market was not very free at the time. Yes. Despite <laughs> conventional wisdom to the contrary. <laughs> exactly. So it's a question, is it the big private conglomerates that are setting the prices, which in a situation where suddenly, let's say, the demand for steel would be skyrocketing since um, the expansion of war production um, required steel as a key input. Now, what would the big steel producers do if they were left to themselves, where they would hike up prices in order to make windfall profits? What can the state do? It can basically force them to stick with the prices that had proven to be profitable enough since they were profitable before the war, right? But uh, not to let them reap windfall profits by not letting them hike up prices in light of this sudden increase of demand. Now, why did this make economically sense? It made sense because the expansion of production would not have been able to catch up with demand in any case. So in that sense, it is really about windfall profits, where the increase in prices, which in standard neoclassical theory, would um, induce an increase in supply in such a situation, like under a war, does not increase supply because you cannot expand steel production quickly enough as the war is demanding more steel. So all that you get by letting prices free is to, to let big private corporations have big windfall profits. So in that sense, for the very concentrated sectors, the price controls um, worked uh, very well. In contrast um, to the American situation, China was, of course, on the one hand, a much more agricultural um, economy and a much more fragmented economy. And more importantly, these basic links of um, suppliers and demanders and all of that. I mean, the basic basic links of production were disturbed in the Chinese context of civil war, whereas they were basically intact in the context of, of the American war economy. So therefore, prices that were not really coordinating production decisions in the American context could well be fixed without um, too much issue. In the context of, of, of China, where prices were also not coordinating production, but where there was also a very erratic um, supply of goods that were in very, very high demand, um, the, the, the price fixes um, didn't work because prices um, were extremely volatile inherently as a result of the specific economic structures. And as I write in the book, Leon Hendershot, who was the um, the director of the Office of Price Administration in the American context actually even traveled to China and advised the nationalists. So there's a very direct link between the American and the Chinese wartime experience. Now to your question about the post-war situation, which turns out to be uh, surprisingly timely in the context of, of COVID, the Atlanta 
Fed um, just issued a study um, a couple of weeks ago suggesting that um, that uh, that the kind of short-term inflationary period that happened after World War II might be something that 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 could be happening in in the context of the post-COVID recovery. Be this as as it may, the point being um, that that this is quite timely. Now. Um, After the war, the situation was one where basically you wanted very rapid structural change in the sense that you wanted the economy to move back from producing for the war to producing for private consumption, from producing tanks to producing cars, if you want so. Um, At the same time, due to a very rapid economic expansion, a very intense boom during the wartime years, People had, um, under conditions of relatively scarce supplies of consumer goods, people in the U.S. had accumulated um, quite um, quite high savings. So, so pent-up demand. Pent-up demand, yeah. So basically, when the war was over, people who had sacrificed during the war, working hard, saving, not enjoying um, much consumption to speak of, um, wanted to use that money to buy durable consumer goods, right? So what economists, um, in, in fact, some of um, the America's most um, famous economists, people like Irving Fisher, Paul Samuelson, but interestingly also Paul Sweezy and so on, um, argued in a letter to the uh, New York Times in 1946 was that if price controls, which at that point were basically um, more or less uh, universal, would be lifted more or less overnight, what would happen is that demand for certain goods in short supply would be um, higher than supply, whereas that supply could not be expanded very quickly. Think, um, for example, it takes some time until a um, factory that used to produce, um, that had switched to producing tanks, switches back to producing cars, right? If you now simply say, okay, prices are free and people can demand, uh, or, I mean, can all, all the demand for, for cars is thrown at, at these um, car producing um, companies, then what they will do will be to hike up prices um, since there is this, there, there is not enough competition if you want so, since all of the car producers will take a certain amount of time until they can pick up production again, right? So therefore, what these economists argued was that prices should be lifted in a selective fashion where only those prices where supply had again picked up and where shortages that were induced by the war um, were overcome would, would be let free, whereas those prices where there were still um, severe shortages that could not be overcome in, 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 in a short period of time should continue to be fixed at um, at a lower level. That did not happen. There was this whole um, political meltdown that ultimately led to um, a, a very sudden um, release of, of pretty much all, um, all price um, controls, which then resulted, in fact, in, in a short, sharp um, period of inflation followed um, by, by an economic downturn. And that was in part because business groups like the National Association of Manufacturers were so opposed to wartime price controls and extending them at the time. And you write that they looked, business groups like the NAM, looked to Austrian neoliberal economists like Hayek and von Mises for intellectual support. 
why did neoliberals at the time argue that price controls were so dangerous? And what sort of influence did they have on the American debate? Yeah. um, So in terms of sheer power politics and interests of business groups, it's, of course, very unpleasant from their perspective to give up on the prospect of windfall profits, right? Think of, (laughs) for example, um, the lumber industry in 2021. If someone would have said lumber prices are just fixed at where they were before the pandemic, because there's no reason that lumber prices are shooting up, the technique of production hasn't changed, the availability of wood hasn't changed, all that has changed is the relationship between... All these dudes have to build decks. Exactly. All that has changed is a sudden <laughs> outburst of demand, right? I mean, dads with decks. Exactly. So, what um, what uh, what sawmills? And vapor grills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Vapor grills and expanded decks that uh, can uh, can accommodate socially distanced uh, uh, gigantic barbecues. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, would sawmills be happy to see? Uh, their 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 once in a century profits <laughs> to be um dictated away by the state saying no you can only sell at the pre-pandemic price of course not right so it's basically a similar kind of situation just that we are not only dealing with sawmills but we are dealing with the biggest um heavy industry conglomerates in the United States um so the the interests on the business side are are, are very straightforward um how does this connect to Austrian economics? Well, in Austrian economics, there's this whole idea. I mean, in fact, in the socialist calculation debate, um, which is all about the possibility of a rational economy, where the Austrians, in, in particular von Mises, attacks the idea on, on the socialist side that socialism could achieve an economy that would be more rational um, than the capitalist economy that by socialists has, of course, traditionally been described as crisis-prone and as such irrational, right? Where his arg- Mises' argument is that um, since in a socialist economy you don't have a clear point of reference for economic calculation, that is, you don't have a rational standard of value, so therefore you cannot have a quote-unquote rational economy, since you don't have any ways of assessing whether it is rational or not, if you don't have a way to set up a rational standard of value. Now, coming from that kind of logic, um, the the Austrians are arguing that um, only a completely free price system has the ability to generate um, rational prices and therefore to um, provide a rational um, reference uh, framework for, for the economy as a whole. Where then the idea becomes that once you start controlling one price, and there are these uh, polemics where, for example, von Mises is saying that only controlling the price for milk would be enough to destroy the free price system. Where the idea is that once you control one price, the, the road the road to serfdom is a slippery slope. From the price of, of milk road. right into fascism, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, 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 yeah. So where where then you you, you have this uh, this idea that if you only control one price, the relative price of this one good, let's say milk, in relation to all other things, let's say bread, would be out of proportion, right? Then once the price of 
bread to milk is out of proportion, then the price of bread to butter might be becoming out of proportion and so on. So that there is this ripple effect that goes through the whole economy where allegedly once a state controls one price, um, it must eventually um, control all prices in order to catch up with the effects that um, follow from one selective price control. And therefore, eventually, price controls must lead into a planned economy and ultimately into um, totalitarianism. And as you say, this is the slippery slope um, um, of, of, of the road to serfdom. So this is, I think, an aspect of Austrian and neoliberal thinking that might not have been fully appreciated in the recent debates, which is that for them, the free movement of prices is really the most sacred of all in the market economy. Without the free movement of prices, there's no um, reliable information. There's no economy to speak of. And it's fundamentally for Austrian, Austrian neoliberals the way that human freedom is expressed. Exactly. Since we are all um, isolated containers that only communicate through price relations, if we don't have the ability to engage in free um, <laughs> free relations of that type, it would it would basically be an under uh, would be undermining freedom as such. Now, this is of course coming from a very theoretical, abstract standpoint, um, but is then turned into polemics that intervene into the post-war debate and that are incredibly convenient for the business groups for whom having price controls means losing windfall profits. He comes on the scene a, a, a little later, but what was Milton Friedman's theory of monetarism and its model for dealing with inflation? And how did Friedman build off and relate to these Austrian neoliberal forebearers of his? I mean... The relationship between Hayek and Friedman, all of that is, is complicated and subject to a whole um, literature in its own right. Um, but let me just say that Friedman, of course, expanded an enormous amount of effort in studying American economic history. And part of it um, was also targeted against the idea that um, wartime price controls could have been any good. Um, and then in the late 1970s, when he um, basically becomes um, the one of the theorists who, who, who starts to um, invent or not necessarily invent, but at least um, at the very least propagate ideas of, of shock therapy, um, he is basically also a warrior in defense of free prices. So as much um, as there are subtle differences between Hayek and Mises and Friedman and different schools within neoliberalism and all of that on the question of free prices and the necessity for free prices. I think there's a pretty, pretty wide ranging um, agreement um, within the neoliberal camp. And what does monetarism in particular bring to the table? Well, <laughs> um, monetarism as a economic theory is basically structured around the idea that all monetary problems, problems that originate from the monetary sphere, that is to say that if there is inflation, there is an oversupply of money in the economy. And if there's an oversupply of money in the economy, then um, then the price level should be going up. Um, as a result, there's no consideration of changes in relative prices and how they relate um, to changes in, in the overall price level. Or in other words, there is what we call in economics a so-called classical dichotomy where the real economy 
um, the so-called real economy, which is real in the sense that it is expressed in real units, not in monetary units, um, is a word of its own. And money is like some sort of a veil that um, that happens above or that, that, that is covering that real economy. But whenever there's something wrong with the veil, then this must become, must originate from the, from the veil itself, from the real economy. However, while there is this dichotomy and this um, separation, it's, um, it's as, as uh, Srafa was writing, in fact, in a review of, of Hayek, uh, it's a bit, uh, how do you say, psychophrenic? That's not the right pronunciation. Oh, sch- schizophrenic? Schizophrenic, yes. So, <laughs> um, as, as Srafa was saying in a review of Hayek, um, it is schizophrenic in the sense that, on the one hand, the real economy and the monetary economy are separate. On the other hand, um, if... The whole role of money is to function as if there was no money. And whenever something goes wrong with money, then this has the potential to set off uh, the, a crisis in the economy as a whole. So it is as if we were saying money doesn't matter, but at the same time, money is the only thing that matters since, uh, since it has the potential um, to, to, to um, create a, a crisis. In, 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 yeah. yeah, money is the only thing that matters and it's in the monopoly hands, at least until crypto, I will bracket that, in the monopoly hands of the state of all actors. So it's actually weirdly this theory of the state having like total power over the economy. Exactly. Inevitably and permanently. (laughs) Yeah, but so the the state should be acting as if it's not there, right? I mean, it it is necessary because you somehow need money, but it should be acting as if it's not there. And whenever it acts as if it is there, then this is like the end of it, right? So, yeah. The Wizard of Oz or something. The Wizard of Oz in reverse. I don't know. Um, We we can't get into the economy of Maoist China in too much detail, but I'd like to cover the, the basics. You write that it was premised on, quote, squeezing the peasants to drive industrialization in the cities. How was this model structured and how did its consequences, which included really horrific famine and mass starvation, how did that shape China's economic policy debates? So squeezing the peasants is a title from an article written by Robert Ash. Um, that is a very careful empirical analysis. Robert Ash is a professor emeritus from um, from SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies in London. The basic way how we can think about this model, I think, is if you imagine you are in a poor economy that is basically a closed economy and you want to industrialize. And before you want to industrialize, everybody is pretty much working for subsistence in the sense that all the stuff that is being produced is roughly also being consumed, not which may include, of course, consumption that is consumption above subsistence. But nevertheless, um, uh, the, 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 the predominant uh, task is to, to produce stuff that people need um, in order to continue to live on. Um, if, if you are in such a situation and you want to industrialize, you need to have someone who is feeding and clothing and housing the people who are um, building a coal mine, building a steel plant, um, building highways, um, building copper mines, and so on. Those people are not farming and producing their own food, so they need someone else to produce food for them. Exactly. They're not producing their own food. They're also not producing clothes or anything else in a light industry factory that would be immediately useful for consumption and would maybe take some pressure off um, of the 
rural households, which in that period often still produced their own clothes, right? Um, so as these people are engaged in producing stuff that is important for the project of industrialization, but that has a very long um, gestation period, only after several years, the steel factory will start to produce steel, right? And will produce then maybe in the first instance tractors. So maybe add another five years until anything comes out that would be helping the production for stuff that is more immediately useful. Okay. So if you think of it in the, in these very simple terms, then someone has to be producing a surplus that in, in very immediate sense finances the buildup of, of basic industries, basic infrastructure and all of that. Right. Now in China's still very, very poor agricultural economy, that surplus was basically coming from the peasantry or from, from the rural um, communities. So this meant that the communes were constantly producing more grain and other agricultural inputs for the urban industrial economy than they were getting back in return uh, output of the urban industrial economy. So the idea was basically that there was some sort of a net transfer from the countryside to the cities that would, um, would uh, enable um, such basic industrialization, infrastructure development and all of that. Now, the way in which this was practically implemented was by having a so-called price scissors, um, which is to say that um, you have a price for grain and other major um, agricultural outputs that is in terms of some notion of value. And it's a whole different question of what kind of value you use. But let's just assume there's some sort of value that tends to be below value, whereas the stuff that is being produced in the urban industrial economy is being sold to the countryside at a relatively higher price so that the price like tractors like like tractors like machi machine machinery and so on yeah um so that the price the relative price functions as a tool of redistribution from the countryside to the urban industrial economy so that is I mean, that is nothing new in the Chinese context. This is a basic problem in development economics. It's also a problem that goes back to the new economic policy and the debates around tax and kind and all of that. Um, but it was... In the Soviet in the Soviet Union. In, in the Soviet Union, yes. But it was basically a more or less continuous element of the Maoist development model, which then after the disasters of the Great Leap and the atrocious, um, I mean, disastrous famine, um, there were some adjustments to the price scissors, but they were then basically put back again. Anyways, we don't need to go into the details of the historiography of when the prices were adjusted, but as a basic model, it was... But we should, we should underline that this, these were, for people who aren't familiar with Chinese history, really disastrous famines. Yeah, I mean... The, like mil, million, millions of Yeah, people. there was basically, I mean, there was mainly... <laughs> One famine, which is post, post, which is one of the worst famines in 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 uh, in modern history, and I should really give out give a shout out to Felix Wemhoyer's work, who has written um, a terrific book comparing the Soviet and the Chinese um, famine that pr provides a lot of details on 
how this has happened and um, also what, what we know about what has happened, what the estimates are and all of that. Some estimate um, up to 40 million people died, but the, the, the estimates are still contested. I'm not a scholar of this and I want to be very careful because I think this is incredibly important. Um, I just want to say that this is uh, important and uh, an extremely, extremely horrifying history that should in no ways be downplayed. You write, quote, the communist revolution was in pursuit of political ambitions larger than economic development. It was about the creation of a new society, freed from both feudalist oppression and capitalist exploitation. Yet for the revolutionaries, a first task had to be to lead China out of atrocious poverty. In addition, you write that there was from the beginning this ambition to, to catch up with or surpass advanced capitalist countries. What role did the particularities of China's revolutionary ideology play in shaping the turn toward capitalism and the whole market reform debate? So as I'm writing there, the revolution was, of course, always about much more than material development, but escaping poverty and catching up with the imperialist powers, which were perceived as pretty direct imperialist powers from the perspective of the communists in, in, in the early time, was always part of the project. In some sense, elevating this aspect of, of the project to the most dominant one that constitutes the shift, not that it's a completely new one. But more importantly, we have to remember that during the Cultural Revolution, there was, of course, this whole ambition towards mobilization of the masses, continuous revolution, basically in Marxist terms, the idea that one could first revolutionize the relations of production and then the forces of production would follow. So this is really a turning on its head of orthodox materialism, where the idea is that um, forces of production are um, developing progressively and then the relations of production, the, the, the social organization of production is an expression of the state of um, technological development, of course, all of this in some some sort of a dialectical relationship. So if in the orthodox reading of this, the development of the forces of production might be emphasized over the development of the social relations of production, then late Maoism as an ideology suggested that one should turn this around. And if one could achieve um, sufficient revolutionary enthusiasm amongst the masses, then this could basically um, help the communist project really leapfrog into higher stages of socialism, even starting from poor material condition to begin with. Now, this whole project had basically faded by the early 70s. And um, by the time of Mao's death in 1976, um, it was all about bringing back people who had been sidetracked during the Cultural Revolution um, and, in fact, um, 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 persecuting the leaders of the Cultural Revolution. So you get this massive political shift away. Gang of four, gang of four is out, economists are exactly. back Exactly. I mean, to put it uh, into possibly too simple terms, but nevertheless, to the point. Um, um, so that's going on in the 70s. And then Hua Guofeng, who is Mao's designated heir, um, steps on the scene, who basically is part of a widely underappreciated opening up of China to the outside world, but a very different one than that that then occurs 
under the reform and opening up. He's sort of popularly remembered as a sycophant, a Maoist sycophant of sorts. Yes. So he's popularly remembered as just being the guy who upheld um, the two whateverisms, which was all about um, um, holding up whatever Mao said and whatever Mao did should be continued. Um, so this is how he's popularly remembered. Also how he has um, been portrayed um by reformers in the Chinese context for some time. Nevertheless, um, the more recent historical scholarship has kind of resurrected Hua Guofeng, um, suggesting that he might have been more than just the what what whateverism guy. Um, and, <laughs> the two whatevers. Yes. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> and I mean, he did two important things. Um, on the one hand, he returned China to agenda of economic development, um, but he wanted to pursue this under some sort of a 10-year big push Soviet-style industrialization plan, which was meant to be fueled um, with foreign technology and financed um, with um, petroleum exports. At the same time, as part of this um, pursuit of foreign technology, Hua Gofeng started to send um, people delegations around the world. So this is this is when you get the first um, tourings of, of Chinese delegations to um, all sorts of countries, including capitalist countries. And there is a very clear realization on the part um, of the Chinese elite, as, as, as for example, Deng Lichun, who is often um, considered as a conservative, but who was really critical in the early years of reform, was saying that we, we have traveled across the world, um, the, the, the West or the capitalist countries have become rich and prosper, prosperous, but there's no sign of revolution at all, right? So there's a very clear sense that um, the idea of, of China overtaking these countries um, has become a very remote goal, and that at the same time, the, 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 the sense of any progressive or revolutionary movements um, in, 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 in the capitalist world is... Um, is um, entirely um, a remote um, fantasy at that point. So in this context, uh, this attempt at a big push basically fails, um, not least because the petroleum findings that were meant to finance the import of um, foreign technology um, are not forthcoming. So that it becomes clear that if China would continue importing foreign technology and capital goods on a large scale, it would run into a foreign indebtedness problem, which, by the way, is the kind of indebtedness problem that other socialist countries have ran into and which made them vulnerable to, to the adjustment programs of the Bretton Woods institutions. So in all of this context, China is basically realizing that it is still a very poor country. Yes, it has made um, progress in terms of building up infrastructure, building up heavy industry, achieving basic um, education, literacy, overcoming certain um, problems in, in public health and all of that. But it is still um, really at, 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 at the bottom in terms of, in terms of its economic um, prosperity. Um, at the same time, all this, I mean, the, the, the moment for revolutionary enthusiasm has, has really been completely turned around. So in this context, this indeed pragmatist attitude of saying, let's do whatever it takes to get China out of this situation um, becomes the, the agenda of the day. Deng Xiaoping rises and the um, reform and opening um, period starts. 
already very early on, um, there is a sense that um, China, since China had tried to jump over stages in history in, in the late Maoist period, what China should now do is to, instead of trying to jump ahead, take a big step back and learn from the capitalist countries, which um, in a technical sense, not necessarily in an ideological sense, but in the sense of of um, policy tools, if you want. So very early on involved um, ideas around um, including market mechanisms into China's um, system. Now, starting from that perspective, markets were initially not meant as a goal in, in, I mean, as an end in themselves, but rather as a means for an end. However, the big question that emerges is how can markets be integrated into China's system and how should one go about this? And in this context, these two sides of the debate that I'm chronicling in great detail in the book um, are emerging as as the two contenders in, in, in what I'm calling China's market reform debate. Yeah, before we get any further, who who were these two groupings of economists, one in favor of gradualism and pragmatism and the other promoting big bang shock therapy? What were their origins, their institutional locations and their ideological orientations and what were their principal points of disagreement? Yeah, so Deng Xiaoping, when he uh, comes into power, he basically um, turns around the slogan of the Kaiser Revolution that was politics in command and says economics should now be in command. However, the economics discipline as an academic discipline for research and education, all of that, had been shattered during the Kaiser Revolution. The Institutes for Economic Research were closed. Um, the most pre- prominent economists had been sent to the countryside, if not into labor camps or into prison. Um, so that in the late 1970s, um, these these forces, um, I mean, these economists really are returning to Beijing, are returning to the cities, reopening research institutes, are starting very quickly to engage in dialogues um, with um, foreign economists. However, even though they have been working on questions of reform, it takes them some time to kind of rekindle their project and to to develop um, reform proposals that are sufficiently concrete to really inform economic policymaking. They do engage in extensive dialogues with Eastern European emigre economists who were deeply versed in the Eastern European reform debates, but many of whom had actually left their native countries or had become some sort of in-betweens, but most of them were really, um, in this early days, interestingly, were really exiled. Um, So they were deeply worst in both West, so quote-unquote Western, which really, which should be really rather called um, mainstream economics um, or neoclassical economics. Um, So these Eastern European emigres had they already knew neoclassical economics because Eastern Europe was strong in, and, and the Soviet Union were strong in neoclassical economics, but they had also acquired knowledge of the latest developments in, 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 in Europe, the US and the UK as a result of, of, of living in exile. So the World Bank basically in the early years of reform um, organized, helped organize, Not was not the only player, but was a key player in helping to organize exchanges between these Eastern European immigrants and the um, Chinese economics profession. And very much in line with the um, 
reform thinking that had been developing in the Eastern European context. Um, there were ideas that one had to think about reform in terms of one organic whole, where you could not change some parts of the system first and then tinker around and move ahead or something like that. But rather, there was a sense that the attempts at gradualism in Eastern Europe had failed and that instead one would have to come up with an analysis of the system as a whole, design a new target system, um, and then decide concrete steps that would as swiftly and as scientifically as possible um, move the old system towards this new target system. And this way of thinking about reform is really analytically in parallel with the ideas of shock therapy, where the idea is also you have to destroy the plan, you have to change the system as a whole, you have to create one unified system of freely moving prices, just like von Mises says, if you still control the price of milk, you have a problem, right? So you want to have universally or as universally as possible free prices in order to um, establish a new complete market economy. Now, as these debates were ongoing and evolving and um, gradually um, being congealed into reform proposals, actual reform in the agricultural sector was already in full swing. It basically started already pretty much in, in, in pretty much the moment reforms started. And this is the beginning of the dual track price system. Precisely. And out of the agricultural reforms, an alternative camp of reform thinkers emerges that proposes a different approach to economic system reform. And these are economists who in many cases were sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. Exactly, but a much younger generation. So whereas these returnees, uh, returning economists who returned to the research institutes were more of a middle-aged or older generation and often trained in Soviet um, orthodoxy, the people who emerged through the agricultural reforms were basically an alliance between more or less first-generation revolutionaries like Du Rongsheng and young-generation intellectuals who were sent to the countryside pretty much in their teenage years, had often spent until their mid-20s or so, or late-20s, um, in small villages. So they, they, they were from urban, often intellectual families, but had really spent the most formative years in their lives um, living living in, in, in the countryside. And in that context, they had, during the, still during the Cultural Revolution, started to think about ways to reform agricultural production and had started to think about um, alternative ways of organizing the political economy of agriculture. And through these discussion circles and pamphlets and all of that, that had been coming out um, from, from these young quote-unquote intellectuals who were living in the countryside thinking about China's future, they had um, started to be in, 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 in a dialogue with um, some of the most powerful leaders that returned to the um, centers of power in, 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 in the late 70s, including people like Hu Yaobang and uh, Deng Lichun and so on. 
So when they come back to the cities, these uh, so-called young intellectuals, which is really, I mean, intellectuals in the sense that they were from um, urban intellectual families, um, not all of them, but a, a, a significant share of them. When they return to the cities as Deng Xiaoping um, ends the sent down youth mo movement and reopens the university entrance exams, they continue to be dedicated to the question of agricultural reform. And as a result of their direct ties um, with um, important um, leaders such as Deng Lijun, Hu Yaobang and so on, they take initiative to survey experiments that are starting more or less bottom-up in the countryside with so-called household responsibility, with the so-called household responsibility system. In particular, Chen Yitzhi is really important in, in, in this context, is one of the leaders who starts to organize what then becomes the agricultural um, reform, sorry, the agricultural development um, group. So these people really not within the system, in the sense that many of them are not even party members, um, but they are linked to the system through the support of some key elderly leaders. And since these bottom-up experiments with the household responsibility system are starting, and the leadership, the reform leadership, needs a way to evaluate um, what's going on, they come, I mean, they, they, they fulfill an important role in that they, are, they represent a certain external, a third party kind of um, agency, since they are not linked into the system, they don't represent anyone within the system. And their um, evaluations, the surveys that they conduct are as such be, be taken very seriously um, and help to create legitimacy for the breakthrough of the household responsibility system. Even the term household responsibility system many say has been coined by Wang Xiaotiang, who, who, who is another important um, figure in that context. Now, what is the household responsibility system? It is the idea that instead of the production team or even the commune as a whole being responsible for the delivery of an output quota, such as a quota in grain, to the plan, this responsibility would now be moved down to the households would, who would have access to land and inputs and machinery and all of that to produce their share in the quota. But beyond producing their share in the quota, the households would now be allowed to um, produce for the market or do pretty much, um, I mean, were left to their own devices and including... And that's the second track in the dual track price system. Exactly, which which resulted in the emergence of a second track, the, the, the market track in the dual track price system, which maintains the core of the system from the perspective of the urban industrial economy in the sense that the urban industrial economy can continue to rely on the grain quota and other quotas from the countryside. However, at the same time, it is an incredibly radical reform, and I think it's important to stress this, um, since it does amount to the dismantling of the communes, and we are talking contexts in which about 80% of the people are living in the countryside. So the dismantling of the communes and the undermining of the institutional base of the communes that was rooted in the collective production is anything but marginal, right? So you have this, it's not marginal from the perspective of maintaining the national 
grain distribution system in place, but it is absolutely radical from the perspective of the organization of, of the countryside. How did that pivotal rural reform then lay the groundwork for the dual track price system moving into the rest of the economy? So first of all, we have to recognize that this creation of markets in the agricultural economy um, came along with also a increasingly active role of state commerce that helped um, to link these market relations that were emerging in the rural sphere um, increasingly also to, to the urban industrial economy. Now, what that meant was that there was basically a demand pull for products that were outside the plan, also in the urban industrial economy. People who decided to work over time to produce for the market and to produce more than the quota was asking from them wanted to have something in return for their work, right? So they, they, they would be demanding things like wristwatches, radios, and bicycles, and all of that. But um, in this period, we also have the popping up of the famous um, township and village enterprises, which, um, of course, could draw on on the, the Maoist tradition of, um, of, of building um, small-scale factories in the countryside, but it, they also needed inputs from, from the urban industrial economy. So both for producer and consumer goods, you have some sort of a demand-pull dynamic that kind of transfers the second track, the market track, from the countryside into the urban industrial economy. So more or less endogenously, a dual track is also emerging in the urban industrial economy. And the big question was, should this be suppressed? Is this something bad? Is this something messy? Or is this something good that can be harnessed, systematized, and turned into a logic of market reforms? And second side in the reform debate um, that opposed um, the perspective that was emerging out of this um, neoclassical way of thinking about um, target systems and steps towards target systems came precisely out of this logic of agricultural reform and defended the dual track system as a way to create markets and to harness them through state um, institutions, whereas as every individual production unit started to cater not only to the plan, but also to the market, um, they would themselves be transformed from units that were simply implementing commands that were coming from above into enterprises that were increasingly market-oriented. So that as part of the dual-track price reform and enterprise reform were kind of going hand-in-hand and were more or less organically um, evolving. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. The Dig is produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. These are tough times for publishing, but Jacobin is sticking at it, publishing over 200 original essays every month online and producing the best socialist print magazine in the English language. Jacobin's work is just so vital in creating socialist arguments that can penetrate into the mainstream and, like Marx says, change, not just interpret, the world. But this work is dependent on your support. If you're able, please consider going to jacobinmag.com donate 
and making a tax-deductible donation today. Regular monthly donations help Jacobin plan even better. That's jacobinmag.com slash donate. You'll keep Jacobin going in tough times, and Jacobin will be there for you for the struggles to come. You mentioned that how Eastern Euro- these Eastern European economists on the pro-shock therapy side had this big influence on the debate. They also served just to legitimate the pro-shock therapy faction within China. And one big point of reference on the pro-shock therapy side was West Germany's post-war currency and price reforms under Chancellor Ludwig Erhard. You write, they were, quote, frequently invoked by neo and order liberal economists as evidence for the effectiveness of overnight price liberalization, including by Milton Friedman in lectures he delivered in China in 1980. But you write that an examination of what happened in post-war Germany contradicts the way that shock therapists mythologized it. And you note that Chinese gradualists didn't just marshal outside expertise. They went and did empirical research, including this 1986 delegation to Hungary and Yugoslavia, where they studied the institutional realities of how reforms in those countries played out on the ground. What did Chinese gradualists learn from the actual history of what had happened in West Germany and Eastern Europe? Yeah, so basically the armchair economics side of the debate, if one wants to polemically call them that way, um, is arguing that um, the Eastern European experience shows that gradualism cannot work and therefore you need to um, move in, in, in one big step according to one big blueprint. Um, Supposedly like West Germany. Supposedly like West Germany. And as Milton Friedman um, argued when coming to China and also when arguing for shock therapy as we're including um, in in Chile, um, suggested that the price reform after the war in West Germany would have been a very simple thing um, where basically Ludwig Erhard um, liberalized all prices overnight and that would have more or less instantaneously created a functioning um, market economy and set the ground for um, the West German economic miracle. So this is the two, if you want so, anecdotal pieces of evidence that um, are invoked again and again in support of um, the idea that one would need a big bang in price liberalization. Now, in 1986, China came very close to implementing such a big bang. And in fact, Zhao Ziyang had taken the initiative to set up an institute that was charged with designing plans for a very comprehensive and far-reaching price reform. Now, those who were skeptical of this idea of the possibility of reforming China's economy, of really transforming China into an economy that saw a greater role for markets towards re-industrialization and development, that this could not be achieved through a big bang. Now, the people who were thinking that, the dual-track reformers, people like Chen Yitzhi, Wang Xiaoxiang, and so on, mainly located at the Economic System Research Institute, but also at other research institutions, tried to understand what the on-the-ground reality of these two cases that were again and again invoked as evidence um, for the possibility of a big, big bang 
would in fact be. So they organized a delegation to Hungary and Yugoslavia that is um, interestingly funded by George Soros and um, conduct about six weeks of interviews and, and on the ground investigations, trying to understand um, how Hungarian and Yugoslav reforms had proceeded and what the mistakes to be avoided really would be. Now, what they hear from the reformers in Eastern Europe itself, or in Hungary and Yugoslavia, to be more precise, is that um, the idea of doing a rap rapid price liberalization is in fact not a helpful approach because what it would um, amount to is a increase in prices of the most upstream production goods, which under the Soviet system traditionally had been priced below cost in order to subsidize more downstream industries. So if you were to let those prices free, these prices would be shooting up. Now, as long as each individual production unit in the socialist system was not working strictly on its own accounts, um, it would simply hand down a price increase that it faced to the next production unit so that as the price of steel went up, the price of tractors would go up. As the price of tractors would go up, the price of whatever was being produced with the tractors would go up. And these socialist production units can't lay people off. They can't go bankrupt. So the discipline of liberalized prices that neoliberals it wouldn't happen. Precisely. As long as you don't have budget constraints, you don't have a labor market and you don't have a capital market, there's no constraint that would um, make the liberalized prices magically happen in some way to rationalize the economy. So in that sense, all that would it, it would induce would be um, a wage price spiral since people, as you just said, could not be laid off. So if these price increases were hand down, eventually hand down to the bicycle and the wristwatch and the radio and all of that, and um, consumers would be facing increased prices, then they, as workers, would be <laughs> demanding higher wages. And since the production units were um, still not organized as market-oriented enterprises, these wage increases were likely to come forward so that um, you would basically get a wage price spiral would risk entering a period of hyperinflation without actually adjusting relative prices or creating institutions that were functioning actually as market actors. So instead, what you would get would be a big mess um, that would not help China's reindustrialization project and that would also not create some sort of wonderful market miracles. So this message was sent back from Hungary and Yugoslavia, which then um, induced Jiaxiang, together with warnings from the state-owned um, enterprise sector, to turn around and stop that plan for Big Bang. In 1988, there was another big attempt at a Big Bang. This time, Deng Xiaoping himself took initiative as reform had entered a certain deadlock, a political and social deadlock, Deng Xiaoping was trying to use... And this was in part because there was some inflation at the time and also corruption concerns. Yes, there was mild inflation, there was corruption, and also it became clear that not everybody stood to benefit from marketization, whereas in the early years it looked as if everybody would just be better off um, as marketization um, was becoming 
more and more widespread, it became clear that some getting rich first also meant that others were left behind. Um, so clearly, um, social tensions um, that, that came from the commodification of, of life and the economy, really, um, were, were building up. And political opposition from those who wanted um, reform, but who did not want to give up on so certain um, key socialist principles of organization from within the system was also um, mounting so that you get this um, increasing tensions around the project of reform itself, which then leads Deng Xiaoping to basically subscribe to this idea of um, this wonderful project, which um, seems to have the potential to cut the Gordian knot, right? And uh, Gordian knot. And um, basically Deng Xiaoping starts lobbying for comprehensive price reform. So in this context, um, the same people, basically Chen Yitzhi, Wang Xiaoqiang and a couple of others, travel to West Germany, this time um, in, in parts uh, facilitated by the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, um, and go to interview people who were involved um, with the West German currency and price reforms. And ironically, it is Herbert Gersh, who um, is someone who was affiliated with the Mont Pelerin Society and who is a major order liberal. Yes, a major order liberal thinker <laughs> is amongst those um, who is warning the Chinese delegation against the idea that they could produce a sudden miracle by pursuing price liberalization, where his line of argumentation is to some extent related to the argument um, that th these same people had been messaging back from Hungary and Yugoslavia, namely liberalizing prices um, is not going to create a market economy if you don't have market players that are enterprises that are subject to market discipline and that have market experience and that know how to engage and organize um, their own production activities um, with market dynamics. So he's saying that um, the situation in West Germany after the war was radically different from the situation in China in the 1980s, in the sense that in, in Germany, um, despite the war economy and um, fascism, big capitalist enterprises had continued to exist infamously. So therefore, you had all the market players in place. In, in such a situation, it may well be um, that simply liberalizing prices can revive the market. However, this was not the um, material reality, the institutional reality that China faced. But none of this careful research that the gradualists did did any good because Deng was committed to pushing through with a big bang and the mere announcement of general price liberalization caused a panic and then an economic crisis. Yeah. One more footnote on the West German story, if you don't mind. Um, so in addition to the argument presented by Herbert Gersh, um, more recent um, scholarship on the economic history of, of um, Western Germany shows that, in fact, this neoliberal reading of West Germany being an instant miracle is also pretty far from the truth in the sense that, in reality, the overnight price liberalizations actually did induce pretty high inflation and also um, gave impetus to the first general strike in um, the West German context after the war, where people were, in fact, protesting against the establishment of a market economy itself. So in that sense, 
just for the record, <laughs> that uh, the, the, this idea of the mystical figure of the Erhard um, miracle is really a mystical figure and not grounded in, 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 in economic history. Was that, was that ignorance entirely an accident? Because that strike wave was the very sort of political instability that Chinese officials wanted to avoid in China. Did some shock therapy proponents, in fact, want to create instability that would bring down communist rule in China? Well, um, that's the big question that is kind of looming in the background of the book um, and that I'm not addressing heads on since I do not have much evidence that, in fact, the shock therapists were for system change, not only in the economy, but also in, politically. I, I have seen some internal um, conversations um, that, I mean, documents on internal conversations between certain economists um, and certain World Bank officials that suggest um, that the logic of one needing um, political system change before one could have um, serious economic system reform was very much well and alive in this context. And that shouldn't come as a surprise because after all, Someone like Otto Schick, who in fact visited um, China, was also arguing that um, radical political change would be necessary in order to achieve serious economic reform. Right. So in that sense, the notion that political reform or even political system change had to precede market reforms was certainly um, around. So we have the proponents of shock therapy who have these idealized abstractions of how they think market reform should work. If the gradualists who are going out there collecting evidence and saying, oh, if we if we do shock therapy, we really could create a huge disaster here. But Deng doesn't care. He's pushing through. And it's only because the mere announcement of general price liberalization, because that causes such a panic and crisis, that shock therapy doesn't end up being fully implemented. How does that play out? Yeah, so this is, as I've said, in a context of already um, heightened social and political tensions and also in a context of already um, uh, high inflation by the standards of, of, of China's own development, where we have to remember that Mao's economy was ironically an, an economy of, of one of the greatest periods of price stability in the 20th century. So against the background of enormous price stability, um, there were certain price rises happening in the early early in the year 1988. So in this context, the announcements for comprehensive price reform unleash a panic where people start um, bank runs, start to hoard whatever durable consumer goods they can get hold of. There's this famous anecdote of people in Kunming, which is the proverbial city of spring in China, where it never gets very hot or very cold, starting to buy up um, whatever stock of air conditioners they can find, which um, at that time is not about climate change, but about panic that one would rather hold an air conditioner, even if there's no use for it, since it was still a better store of value than holding money, where basically the belief in money as being a good store of value um, was crumbling. So in this context, um, as a result of this um, extreme backlash, um, bottom-up backlash against um, against the announcements of price reform, Deng Xiaoping basically makes a big turnaround um, and um, you get this uh, already move away from reform, um, the attempt to cool down the economy, 
containing in investments, but also techniques that, that, that are similar to the ones that I've described for the 1940s, where um, the value of money was packed again against certain co core essential um, commodities in order to try to recreate trust in, in, in the value of money. All of this, so this spiraling out of control in the economic sphere and this economic backlash against reform in terms of policy reversal, this messy situation that emerges in, the 19, in, in 1988 is part of the economic back, backdrop of what then happens in 1989. The, the 1988 crisis had serious consequences, including the protest movement in Tiananmen Square and the government massacre that repressed it. And after the massacre, proponents of gradualism were sidelined or purged. By contrast, you write that shock therapy proponents, quote, enjoyed stellar careers. How did the near shock treatment crisis of 88 create the conditions that led to the student movement and then the government repression of it? And why was it or how was it that the official interpretation of Tiananmen Square led to proponents of shock therapy being rewarded while the gradualists who had warned against precisely that sort of crisis were punished? Yeah, um... So I think this also relates to your previous question on whether the shock therapists wanted such a political meltdown, right? And as it so happens, the gradualists, um, which which was not only the people who have um, emphasized in, in this interview, but a whole range of um, important research institutes and intellectuals who had emerged throughout the 1980s, basically had emerged thanks to their strong ties to Zhao Ziyang and thanks to the success of agricultural reforms that was not le least led by Zhao Ziyang. So in 1989, um, when these mass protests and really this social movement um, is happening, um, these gradualists who are themselves part of the younger generation, I mean, older than, than the students at that point, but still part of the younger generation of reform um, intellectuals, basically declare in a pamphlet solidarity with the demand of the protesters for dialogue between the protesters and the leadership, which is ultimately aligned with what Zhao Ziyang um, then does, since Zhao Ziyang famously goes to the square of um, heavenly peace and um, talks to the students, which sets up um, the political, complete sidelining politically of Zhao Ziyang. Zhao Ziyang lands in prison until the end of his life. As a result of this expression of solidarity on the part of um, a range of key gradualist reform um, thinkers, they then basically more or less disappear from the scene. Um, they Many of them go in exile, study in the United States, in the United Kingdom and other countries. Um, some, a smaller number, um, ends up in, in prison. Some kind of disappear by going into private business. And a very small number um, also continues political careers. It's not like everybody has disappeared, but it, has, it is a huge blow to, um, to this force in, in the reform thinking and reform policy making, where... Several of my interviewers from all ranges of opinions um, were arguing that someone like Wang Xiaojiang would have been thought of as potentially one of the future prime ministers of um, China. And then 
in, in the 90s uh, is, is f far away from such a trajectory. Okay, um, so on the other hand, um, the, those who had argued most vividly for a Big Bang type of approach, um, including by 1988 also increasingly arguments for privatization, including arguments against rent-seeking that are derived from the so-called Virginia School, which is one particular school of neoliberal economic thinking. Public choice, James Buchanan and whatnot. Precisely. <laughs> so... These, this group, um, under not least the, um, the leadership of Wu Jinglian, according to two separate documents that I found in the pretty much immediate aftermath of the crackdown on um, June 4th and the political demise of Zhao Ziyang, seized the opportunity to um, denounce Zhao Ziyang for um, having betrayed reform by pursuing the kind of false approach that he, in their eyes, had been pursuing. And at the same time, and of course, this is not everybody who has argued for Big Bang makes that move. And I'm in the book very precise who exactly and when and where and what that letter is and all of that, which I shouldn't be going into now. But just to say that um, in using this political opportunity to denounce Zhao Ziyang, they are setting themselves up for influence in the 1990s. So in that sense, it is not the case that we have an alignment of shock therapy and quests for democratization, but rather we have, um, even though many of the protesters were arguing for something like shock therapy, nevertheless, it's... Ironically, there are layers of irony and contradiction in these conflicts. Yes. I mean, it's messy. It's very, very messy. And there's no such thing as a clear-cut interpretation. But it's clear that there is an element, and this is something that also pe some people in, in interviews have mentioned to me, that by 88, it was clear that um, price reform would only be possible with, um, with Pinochet type of methods. So there was also a certain... I mean, there was certainly a reflection that um, a, a, a good degree of authoritarianism might be required for very brutal market reform. So in that sense, it's not like most shock-like market reforms equal ambition for democracy or something like that, but rather there's a whole blend over of people who are both economically liberal and politically radical liberals, but also people who are economically um, not as radical um, but want different forms of democratic organization and all of that. So it's a very, very messy, um, messy type of um, clash of, of, of views, really. Well, of, of course, according to neoliberals, authoritarianism is, is okay. Totalitarianism is the real problem. But Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you said that, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Sorry, go ahead. In the 1990s. Um, in the 1990s, and this is a point that I just want to make, make sure that this comes across. Um, so when I say shock therapy in my book, I'm really referring to a very specific definition of shock therapy, as I have laid out in the beginning of this interview, which is in some sense, a technical term that comes from a specific economic policy discourse. This is not to say that there haven't been shocks in the 1990s and that there haven't been quite drastic privatizations in the late 1990s. This is not to downplay what happened um, in, 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 the, in the Rust Belt in the late 1990s, the layoffs of millions of workers and all of that. This is, 
this is not the point. Um, the point is, at the heart of the debate of the 1980s was not the question whether or not to quickly liberalize in essential sectors. You may well liberalize overnight the prices for bikinis, or you may well overnight liberalize the prices for little toy mirrors for children. But what you should not be doing from the perspective of the gradualist um, reformers was to liberalize overnight the prices of the core, the backbone of the industrial urban system. And let me use this as an opportunity to also clarify um, one aspect that some people have been pointing out to me in some conversations, which is this also means that there is a recognition that the building up of heavy industries um, under the Mao period actually was of some value and that it was about reindustrializing the state-owned um, enterprises, changing their mode of operation, making them competitive, introducing international management techniques, bringing them to the technological frontier, rather than about primarily splitting them up and creating a competitive market as an end in itself. Do you see the relationship forged at that time between the economic system and the repressive state as shaping or helping us understand the dynamic today between economics and an increasingly authoritarian state under Xi Jinping? Once again, in the context of destabilizing economic elements, in this case, maybe debt and managing this tension between boosting domestic consumption while at the same time supporting growth through a still relatively export-dominated strategy? I think it's important to study the 1980s to understand how China came on the specific reform path that it has been pursuing. At the same time, I think that the situation today is quite drastically different from the situation in the 1980s in so many ways. Um, I mean, first of all, China has risen quite significantly economically. So yes, China's GDP per capita is still um, very low compared to the United States. And I just saw an estimate from Larry Lau's book on um, US-China trade war that suggests that based on his projections, um, the uh, Chinese GDP per capita may um, catch up with the American one um, sometime in the late 21st century. So this is talking another 80 years or so. So in, in that sense, there, there is still a huge gap. But nevertheless, the position of China in the world has changed drastically. But also internally, China has changed drastically. The 1980s was a moment of genuine openness. It was not clear what was going to come next. It was a moment of very, very open debate, open in, in not only in the sense of not censored or something like that, but open in the sense of really being at a historical juncture where the question of how to move into the future was, was at stake. So in that sense, today's moment, I think, is, is, is really drastically different from the 1980s. At the same time, of course, 1989 has set a pattern of... Um, of political constraint, I mean, sharp political constraint, and has also established the 
willingness to use means of coercion if if that is what what, what seems to be necessary um, while at the same time prioritizing um, economic growth and um, and uh, and marketization um, at at pretty much whatever it takes the 1980s was also when China began to pursue a coastal development strategy that attempted to replicate the success of the Asian tigers Hong Kong Singapore South Korea and Taiwan and you write that this strategy, quote, constituted an internationalized version of gradual marketizations from the margins and the dual track system. What what was the relationship between domestic market reforms and China's new export-oriented positioning itself within the world capitalist system? And then to what extent did the China boom also take off from material and ideological foundations laid by developmental states in Japan and the Asian tigers? The coastal development strategy um, can be perceived as an internationalized version of the dual track in the following sense, not in the sense that what happened in the coastal zones and the export zones and the, I mean, the, the, the export of cheap labor with all the implications from the commodification of labor that come with it, um, not, not from from the perspective of taking this by itself, but from the perspective of what this coastal development was meant to do um, within the system as a whole, um, where the idea was that the state should basically continue to play a very active role at the core of the industrial system, and at the same time should induce foreign investments um, into light industry downstream sectors in order to encourage um, the export of cheap labor in order to generate um, foreign revenues, which could then be used to import technology and import capital goods without needing to become indebted internationally in any substantial way, while at the same time using the coastal development as a way to um, upgrade um, the more upstream industries along with um, creating a competitive light industry sector. What does this have to do with the East um, Asian development um, model? It has to do with the East um, Asian development model in a pretty direct sense, um, not least as Zhao Ziyang very explicitly acknowledges, um, for example, in, 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 in The Prisoner of the State, which is a book that has been um, made available in English, um, where he says that the East Asian tigers had just risen economically so much that um, they were about to lose their competitive advantage in um, exporting cheap labor and were moving up the, the famous value chain. Um, so therefore, there was a big space that was opening up that China could fill in where thanks to its good infrastructure, disciplined labor power and um, low wages, it could basically attract the kind of industries that were starting to no longer be the mainstay of the East Asian neighbors. So in that sense, it is a strategy of, of following the, 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 the famous flying geese, um, which um, which, of course, also brings um, into the story that um, the kind of dismantling of industries um, in, in the United States did not necessarily begin with China, but began very much with um, 
supporting um, some of the Cold War allies um, in, in, in East Asia and sacrificing the light industries in the first place, which then, of course, became a, a much bigger migration of, of capital out of and production out of the United States into East Asia. But so in that sense, China is um, stepping into uh, the, the footsteps of the East Asian tigers. But at the same time, China's scale is, of course, so different from the East Asian tigers that as China is taking on that role, the dynamic that is being unleashed um, becomes um, something that is probably because of the difference in scale, um, also different in, in quality. And of course, internally, it is important to, of course, see commonalities with the East Asian tigers. But at the same time, I think the sheer scale and complexity of China's development is its own beast. And the fact that you have a Communist Party um, that continues to be in power and that organizes the state um, also sets apart um, the state market relationship in, in, in the Chinese context from that that we have observed in the East Asian um, tigers model. I want to turn to the U.S. for the end of the interview because we, of course, failed to escape our own version of shock therapy in 1979 when Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker sent interest rates through the roof to tackle inflation. But it wasn't just, but it wasn't just inflation, as uh, Cedric Duran, pardon my French pronunciation to all French-speaking listeners, as he writes in the New Left Review, the Volcker shock quote came in a period when declining systemic dynamism in the advanced capitalist world, brought on by intensifying competition with successful Japanese and German ketchups, was met by rising labor militancy and mass social movements, producing a general crisis of governability. Duran writes, quote, stabilize prices, crush labor, discipline the South, meaning the global South. This was the basic logic of the 1979 coup. But uh, he continues speaking about the situation right now, quote, the scale of the Biden administration's public spending is deliberately designed to generate a high pressure economy, which necessarily involves an element of inflationary risk. It is on this point that 2021 can be considered a 1979 coup in reverse. He, he's careful to em emphasize that the scale and manner in which Biden is doing the spending and doing this economic policy is nowhere near enough to deal with the climate emergency. But what is, in your opinion, the significance of Biden's break with economic orthodoxy? And to what extent do you think that that break has been overhyped in cases where Biden's framed as the second coming of, of FDR? I mean, I do think that it is very significant. I think it, it in, in that sense, I, I agree with the um, basic uh, thesis articulated by Durand in this piece. Um, I think there's an ironic parallel between 1979 and now, where in both cases, the sudden and quite drastic shift in economic policy orientation in the United States is um, done in ways that is primarily oriented towards the domestic context, where, of course, the Volcker shock unleashes a massive crisis in, in, in the global south due to the increase in interest rates, which, um, which um, creates a, 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 a massive problem for um, highly indebted developing countries. And now again, it seems that the, um, everything that is progressive and wonderful and that I'm fully in support of in terms of climate change and public investment and all of that um, is uh, entirely, at the same time, entirely focused on, 
on the domestic economy and um, as such um, is, is, is once more not, not really um, thinking in terms of how, how the globalized world is, is hanging together and how, what, what the implications of bringing American industry home for the rest of the world. So in that sense, there's some, some strange um, ironic continuity. That, of course, also pertains to China. And I think it is quite telling that this shift is basically, I mean, the first shift is happening in a context where, of course, in the late 1970s was by no means um, clear that the Cold War was over. But the great hype around the Soviet economic miracle was also kind of seeding. So the, the sense of um, American economic power was was would have been quite high in the late 1970s. Now, this re- reversal is happening at a moment when that exact sense of being an economic power without any serious contender in the world um, is very clearly coming to a close um, so that this is kind of the the bitter taste that that comes with the with the shift to Bidenomics, where um, it seems that this shift um, has only been possible in response um, to what is perceived as the threat of of China's rise. Where at the same because the U.S. needs to do whatever is possible to confront China's rise, and we tend to think of the crisis of American neoliberalism in domestic terms, but really, like China's boom rooted in China's escape from shock therapy, really plays this major role in delegitimizing the neoliberal consensus in in the U.S. and giving rise to Bidenomics, which has all these progressive valences, but also is just disturbingly, as you're saying, embedded in this new Cold War framework. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the irony is that um, that on the one hand, the rhetoric against China's economic practices as being unfair and and all of that is probably at the greatest height that it's ever been. While um, in the same sentence almost, there is a call for the exact same practices within the United States. Um, So so you get this um, enormous contradiction where um, China has, I mean, if one takes the connection with the American World War II and post-World War transition economic policy debates seriously, that in some sense, to some degree, China has preserved some of the pre-Volker shock type of economic policy approaches that used to be prevalent in the United States itself. But now they seem to only be revivable, if you want so, in the American um, context by pitching the US against China or China against the US, where sadly, of course, the challenges at stake, I mean, be it a a pandemic or be it climate change, um, or in fact, even if we consider the need for public investment in the United States itself, um, could probably be tackled um, much more effectively if if it was possible to to pursue a more cooperative um, type of approach. And here I would like to make a, a, a quick reference to a pretty technical point that I've just been puzzled by how little it has been discussed, which is there is this massive debate around inflation. And um, we have seen some important prices of important um, commodities um, going up, which in parts has to do with the speculative 
hike, but in parts might also have to do with the sudden um, recovery. Now, if, which seems to pretty clearly be the case, the United States needs very large scale investments in all sorts of infrastructure development, then this goal based, in fact, as, as, as James, James Galbraith has been arguing in a recent piece um, for INET based on an, uh, a review of the White House um, study of, of, of supply chains, then this very goal is not compatible with at the same time decoupling from China because so many inputs are certainly not invented in China, but are produced and assembled in China, so that if you want to pursue such a massive expansion, as I think the US should, it is very hard at the same time to decouple from China and then not run into a big inflationary crisis, because this is the recipe for enormous shortages in the things that you need most urgently for the kind of public investments that are needed with great urgency again. To close out, your, your book is a serious indictment of neoliberalism, but it also raises questions for today's socialists. Do you believe that socialism is possible? And if so, how might it work? Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, let me be clear that, and, and I, I want to make that point not to be misread, um, China has escaped shock therapy. Escaping shock therapy is not the same as building model socialism. So these are two very, very different things. So just to not be misinterpreted, um, it's important to to make that statement. Yeah, I intended my question to imply, I intended as a premise of my question that China is not socialist. Thank you. Exactly. I, I just want, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I just want to make sure <laughs> to the listeners out there in the world <laughs> That I'm not not trying to argue that escaping shock therapy is the same as 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 being um, escaping exactly. capitalism, escaping the capitalist world exactly. system. <laughs> um, at the same time, I think that what is socialism is a very serious question that the left faces in the 21st century and in, after this pandemic and with a new urgency and. While, of course, we should all be for public investments in care infrastructure, climate change, and, 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 and all these important initiatives that have come forward, including the Thrive Act, which is probably the most far-reaching of these initiatives, my sense is that a serious reflection about the history of socialism and the attempts at socialist projects in the 20th century could be quite useful in thinking about how to move forward with ideas of, of socialism. This is kind of my non-answer to say. <laughs> my book um, was the attempt to um, try to contribute my understanding of China's trajectory at this pivotal moment of the 1980s. And I think a lot more historically grounded discussion and reflection is needed to draw the kind of conclusions that you are asking me for. Could there be forms of market socialism, hypothetically, that are more socialist? I think so. I think that, generally speaking, it would be a good idea to think about markets more flexibly, um, in the sense that I don't think we have to think 
about a market economy as being a pure market economy. And at the same time, this element of thinking about the market as a tool that kind of comes back in a, again and again in my book, I think can be a useful starting point. Um, I think what has to follow, and which is something that I have not done in the book, is to think very carefully whether it is possible to use the market as a tool and in the hands of what kind of organization can it be a tool as opposed to a organizational mechanism that becomes so powerful and that unleashes such a po powerful dynamic of its own that it turns from, from being a tool into being, being the logic of, of, of the system itself. So can we, if we think of Marx's analysis of the evolution from a tool to machinery, where initially the worker uses the tool as a tool and then the worker becomes a tool of the machine, then can the market be a tool in the early stage of the development of capitalism? I mean, as in the early stage of, of development of capitalism's relationship between tool and worker, or is the market always a machine that kind of takes over <laughs> um, and, and has such a strong dynamic of its own that it that it cannot be simply used? And I, I don't have an answer to that question, but I think it's a question that a serious debate might be useful for on. Well, Isabella Weber, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dan. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for all these great questions. Isabella Weber is a professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of How China Escapes Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after marveling at how the United States had developed its productive forces as if in a greenhouse, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, though this July and August, only every other week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. Also on iTunes or wherever, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you conveying to your friends, family, whoever, why you like the show and listen to it, why they would like the show and should listen to it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.